What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is with Anika Gupta, the author of the new book, How to Manage a Crowd. To research for her book, she got to talk to all different kinds of internet moderators from the largest subreddits to FetLife, the King community, to Make Dinner Great Again, a dinner community that's trying to bridge political divides who recently had to move online and manage those conversations in a digital space. She really set out to answer this question of what is the experience of internet moderators today? What are the challenges that they're facing? What systems have they developed to do their job? And how do they take care of themselves in such an emotionally taxing role? It's something that every single community builder will be able to relate to. And if you're building a moderation team, it's a ton of information that you should make sure to know to make sure that they can be successful and healthy. So many good insights in this conversation. You're all going to love it. Let's dive in. Anika, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, David. It's wonderful to have the chance to to talk about these topics we both love. Absolutely. It's my my favorite part of this podcast. I just get to geek out with other community geeks for an hour. Well, awesome. So happy to have you here. Would love if we could just kick off and you share a little bit about your story and your background and what brought you here today. Absolutely. So I actually started out, my interest in online communities goes back several years, but I studied journalism when I was in college, and I worked as a journalist for several years. And so really my first exposure to what we would think of as online community, or sometimes the absence thereof, was uh, the comments section on news articles. And as, as I'm sure you know, the comments section on news articles was really for a long time, while occasionally there were positive examples, most often there weren't. And so I, as somebody who was in the field and was really interested in opportunities to create conversation among readers and journalists and expand that process, began to ask some questions around why are comments sections so negative? And I turned that into a whole bunch of independent research. And so I went to graduate school and I started interviewing people who worked as uh, comment moderators. I interviewed commenters themselves. I interviewed people at news organizations. And out of that, I really came to appreciate so much more both the challenges and the incredible importance of moderation. And so that research project actually really ended up being about moderators and the stories of moderators. And so after that, I thought, okay, that was some great initial research. You know, what what lies after this? I continued to be interested in this question of how important moderation is and how we can make, you know, moderation even stronger, better, and more visible. And so that's what actually led to my most recent project, which is a book, How to Handle a Crowd, which is coming out very soon. And this really is a collection of interviews with moderators of different types of communities. And so it was a chance to sit down, talk to them about the work that they do, why they do it, what's hard and easy and challenging, learn about their communities and be immersed in their communities as well. And so their stories really formed the bulk of it. And uh, in fact, it was one of those those moderators, Nandini of Check My Ads, who first put us in touch. So uh, I'm grateful to her. And it just shows you what a strong community there is among people who do this kind of work. I didn't know that. That's awesome. And so, yeah, when, when you talk about moderators, in your book, you're kind of you, you kind of set out a definition of what a moderator is and what a community is. And so moderators can be anyone from someone who manages a subreddit to someone who's started a community. Uh, maybe they manage it on a large existing platform. Who are the people that you really interviewed and write about in the book? Uh, you're totally right that uh, the definition of moderation uh Well, the type of people who can be moderators, it really varies. Uh, So in the book, I specifically focus, although not exclusively, on people who work as volunteer community moderators. So the way that I define that is they are not necessarily getting paid by the company or the platform on which they're moderating. And they're often running really large communities. And when I think of a community moderator, there were a couple of uh, characteristics that were important to me. I wanted to look at people whose work was visible in the community. So that's a really important distinction because a lot of technology platforms nowadays, as we know, employ moderators who aren't necessarily visible, contract moderators who are maybe going through objectionable content. And that's a really important and also often uh, invisible line of work. And a lot of people are doing great studies and research there. And I think of community moderation as 
kind of related to that, but also quite different in that community moderators are often the people whose comments you'll see, like in a Facebook group. So I was looking for people who had that visible role, who were negotiating openly among different members of their community and the platform, who were dealing in that world of relationships. So they were creating relationships with the community members, with other moderators, with the material and the purpose of the community. And so that was really what was interesting to me. And so I was looking specifically at that type of person. That said, there were a couple of ways in which that varied. So one of the people whom I spoke to is actually uh, began as a volunteer community moderator but then got hired to lead moderation efforts at a nonprofit. And another person I talked to is actually a YouTube influencer who started out as a volunteer, but then went went pro as an influencer. And so our content creator, I really should say, not, not an influencer, um, a YouTube content creator, a creative. And, um, and so uh, those are kind of two interesting examples of how something that began as volunteer work really became a, a full-time job. What was the question that you set out to answer in writing the book? I think there were a couple. The first really big one was what can we, as participants in online conversations, in a world where online conversation is part of our daily lives and becoming an increasingly large part, what can we learn from people who have been doing this work for, in many cases, for years? So that was the first part. And then the second part is related to that, which is, are there ways we can create a better world for moderation? That can mean a variety of different things. That can mean how we as members of online discussions view moderation work, how we help and participate in the work of moderation where we can. It can relate to how communities and society view moderation work online. Uh, It can also relate to how companies treat moderation work. So I think those were the twinned questions. I think for me, it was really a chance to discover there's this fascinating arena of managing human relationships, mm-hmm. relationships that have been so crucial to so many of our development. I can think back to so many online communities I was a part of in my teenage years. Uh, and I just wanted to have the chance to dig deeper into that and say, what makes that hard or easy? What type of person does it? What passion brings you to it? And, and what challenges you? Hmm. It's really interesting because it is it is kind of an invisible role a lot of the time. Even even if they are visible within the community, they're volunteers. I th- you know, everyone listening to this podcast is building a community and, and most likely has some form some form of a moderator program or or some way that they empower the community to kind of self manage and self lead and self organize. What were some of the biggest learnings that you got from your research on, you know, who who are these people and why do they choose to put in so much time to moderating these communities? Well, you know, uh, David, I'll actually, I will answer that question, but I will, you know, one of the things you mentioned is this idea of visible versus invisible work. And so mm-hmm. uh, I, one of the researchers whose work I read when this began uh, was Claudia Lowe, who's written about Twitch moderation. And I mentioned this in the, in, uh, the book as well. But I think one of the really interesting distinctions that Claudia draws is between when people perceive moderation has happened and when it's actually occurring. Mm-hmm. And What that means is that a lot of times for people in a community, especially if you're not necessarily one of the most invested people, you don't see moderation until, let's say, somebody removes a comment or says something about, uh, you know, basically a moderation action. Has somebody been banned? Has a comment been removed? Mm -hmm. But Claudia's central point is that so much of the work of moderation is actually stuff that happens behind the scenes among moderators, decisions and conversations about what the community's values are and who to make space for and how to do that. And those are things that people in the community may feel, but they may not necessarily see. And so I think that that interplay of visible and invisible work is one of the really interesting parts of being a moderator. And I think it was that what we might think of as the less visible part of that work that I was really interested in also in this book and, and in this project. So I think that that's the first part of, you know, answering right. a question you maybe didn't specifically ask, but a really interesting <laughs> point that came up. I hinted at it. I think that's spot on, right? It's like a lot of moderation is proactive. It's it's creating a space for healthy, respectful engagement. If it's only reactive, it may not be as effective. Totally. Exactly. Uh, And that proactive reactive is another way to think about it. So I think one of the key things that definitely comes out of that, which will probably resonate with a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, is that 
actually an enormous amount of the work of moderation is going to be in that proactive space. Mm. And it's going to be uh, thinking about thinking about what the boundaries of your community are. Like, I think in order to define a moderator, you also have to think about what a community is. And so you're thinking about different facets of that. You're thinking about the platform that they use, the purpose that brings people together. Uh, and so I think moderators are really important in shaping that purpose. And so uh, I think one of the things that I kind of realized in the course of writing this book, and also generally believed, is that we talk about online communities as being like either inclusive or exclusive. We use words like that a lot. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is very clear to me is that this idea of perfect inclusivity is a myth. Mm. You're never going to have an online community where every single person on earth who wanders in is going to feel happy, comfortable, and 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 respected. Mm -hmm. and, and there are really valid reasons for that. And I think within that, moderators are the ones who are really putting those stakes in the ground. Like, what are the boundaries of this community? What is the space of respectable debate? Mm. So I think that one of the key things that moderators do, really good involved moderators, is they have a very clear sense of what purpose they're intending to serve and what their sphere of reasonable discussion and debate is. And they stay true to that purpose. Yeah. And it's really difficult. And it can often involve spending a lot of time in your community, really clarifying specific things about your guidelines, thinking deeply about the individual members of your community. There are a lot of skills and, and activities that go into it. Yeah. But I think that's a huge part of it. So that's one of the things that kind of came away from it. The other... I want to pause real quick because you brought up a very interesting topic on perfect inclusivity. Mm -hmm. I think this is, it's a really interesting topic because it's obviously a, a big topic today. We're talking a lot about inclusivity, uh, building more diverse and equitable spaces. And the word exclusive has a negative connotation, especially in the community space a lot. It's like exclusive. It's you're, you're not being open. You're not being welcoming. Can you say more about, so like, like, how do you know, right? Like, how do you know if it's the right kind of exclusivity, right? If, if all communities cannot be perfectly inclusive and they have to be, you know, somehow exclusive, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you know, how do you, how do you kind of suss that out? Like, what's the right kind of exclusivity that's still fair and moral? I think there are two ways to think about that question. One, of course, is what I personally might think is fair and moral, but the other is a sort of tactical question, which is for a person who is an administrator or a moderator of a community, regardless of what that community is aiming to do, how do you think about this question of inclusivity versus exclusivity? So I think to kind of get at that second question, which is that tactical element, I think one of the key things is when you start out and create a community or when you're stepping into the role of moderating a community, one of the key things that you end up asking yourself is what is the purpose of this gathering as people? What are we getting together to do? And there are different purposes. It could be finding camaraderie and fellowship around an unexpected interest, uh, feeling validated, there are a lot of emotional purposes that go into why we join communities, so that's part of it. It could be very specific, getting information relevant to maybe doing their day-to-day -day job better. It could be getting information about not necessarily a particular product, but really trying to understand, again, whether that product is potentially going to do a job for them in their day-to-day -day life. There are a lot of reasons why people might come into a community, and you as the moderator have to decide which of these purposes you want to encourage. And so then, as you start thinking about what it means to include or exclude different types of conversations or different types of individuals, I think the key question is, how can you keep things true to that purpose? And the way that that then manifests is, not just your community guidelines, but also how you think about what's on topic and off topic. Right. For example. You talk a lot about in the book, uh, you interviewed, you know, next door moderators who are looking at kind of local neighborhood communities. You talk about, you know, political communities or, or where politics shows up in communities. You also have an entire section about how to talk about race in communities. And so on that topic of inclusivity, how can a moderator really know if their space is, is truly inclusive and identify the areas where they're being, you know, maybe improperly exclusive? I think that's such a great question. Yeah. Uh, if you have the answer, I'll be very impressed. <laughs> well, I, it's a big because one. Because it is a big question. Because I think this question really gets at, like, if you have an idea about what you want your community to be, how do you assess whether your community is living up to those values and or not. Right. And I think that there are a couple ways to address that. 
I think one, of course, is looking at kind of the surface level of interaction of your community, the things that everybody or many people can see. Uh, who all is commenting in those spaces and what viewpoints are being represented? Yeah. And if you are not seeing what you need, then you have to think about how to get what you need into your community. And what does that mean? And so I think that the next step then is to start looking into you can also then reach out to members of your community who might be more silent, for example, and say, you know, what's your experience here been? Would you be comfortable kind of talking to me about it? Mm -hmm. And they might have insights for you as the moderator and say, you know, there was a time when I tried to bring up a topic and I felt the response was incredibly negative in XYZ way. And so when you have that feedback, then you can then go back to the community. And as a moderator, think about how do you frame discussions? How do you you know, bring out certain voices and create space for them in a way that might feel a little more respectful. Mm. Uh, so you have to commit to that solution. So I think that's one or the other. The other is if you don't have any members in your community who, like, let's say you want to have a particular kind of discussion and nobody is having it, um, and there's there's nobody to have it, I think you have to ask yourself, what were the principles on which this community was founded? And where are spaces where those discussions are happening? Mm -hmm take a look and say, are there practices their moderators are following that we can think about implementing? Right. I think it's very hard to take a space that has historically been one type of inclusive and suddenly turn it into another. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think, of course, one is people get a sense of you know, what a community should be. Mm -hmm. The people in it get used to interacting in a certain way. Uh, so I think that Making a total change is very hard. Yeah. Uh, but I think that there are there are ways to think about it. And I think that people who are coming in and starting communities now from the beginning have a bit of an advantage in asking those questions because from the ground up you can try and build something that, you know, that that meets your your needs a bit better. Yeah. What did you learn about facilitating conversations around politics or race within communities? Oh boy. Uh, I'm diving right in. I'm, we're not wasting any time. Like these are the big, the big topics, right? I, you know, I'm remembering how when I was back, when I was a journalist studying online comment sections, race was the topic that comment sections could not handle. I mean, so <laughs> I think this is this question of how do we create, you know, healthy disagreement and conflict. Um, and that's a challenge, not just in online communities, but actually in life. Yeah, that's a human problem. It's a, right. It's a human problem. And we bring it to the Internet uh, as so often. Which, which is a whole different breed of problem because uh, you have anonymity. You have you're further removed from the person that you're impacting. There's it's harder to express empathy for an avatar. So it, it's exacerbated, is it not? So I think one of the groups that I found really interesting in this regard was a group that I do profile in the book. So they're called, uh, and, and a lot of the, the groups I'm talking to, I mean, a part, navigating difference among members is a key part of what moderators do in any community, right? Like all the time, day to day. But I think one of the groups that I talked to that was really explicitly devoted to that purpose was this group called Make America Dinner Again. I saw this. In the book. Yes. So Make America Dinner Again, MADA, etc. So the two people who co-founded it, Justine and Tria, both of whom I spoke to, uh, actually started this as an in-person movement shortly after the 2016 election. And theirs is one of several initiatives like this. Um, and there are I, and, and I was really impressed by Justine and Tria's approach, as well as their sincerity. Uh, also, and I'll get to this at the end, of course, recognizing that you know, every approach can have its pros and cons. I love talking to them. And I think that part of the reason is because this was one of the central questions. They both started out after the election with trying to understand, you know, our country feels really divided right now. And they were very interested in trying to create moments of connection across what they perceived to be a divide in political opinion. Hmm. So one of the key aspects, and that became the focus of their in-person philosophy and later online moderation philosophy, was how do you think about humanizing people on the other side of a voting divide? Mm -hmm. And so they actually created a series of what they called dinners, hence Make America Dinner Again. And people would get together in person and they would try and get a representative mix of people with a, with a diversity of political views. But instead of jumping right into the tough questions at the beginning of the dinner, they would often have people start by doing one-on-one -on -one discussions. And they would start with smaller questions. Whom do you most admire? You know, do you have any great role models? If you could have dinner with a famous person, who would it be? Mm -hmm. And then they had people tackle perhaps slightly more political questions, but still ones that came from the perspective of who you are as a person. So they would ask questions like, 
you know, uh, how did you decide whom to vote for in the most recent election? So you're kind of getting at this question from the side. You're not suddenly launching into like, defend your viewpoint. <laughs> you're really saying what influenced you as a human to come mm. to your point of view. Okay. And they talked about that a lot. And so then they and then they kind of had larger group discussion at the end of that after people had been primed and prepared. And so when they started moving their group online and then as moderators, of course, they were very actively engaged. They were constantly monitoring people's expressions. They were thinking about ways to give them tools to indicate if they were uncomfortable. So then when they started thinking, hey, we could potentially, you know, should we think about scaling this in an online way? Uh, I think one of the key challenges was really, and and again, this is me drawing from our, our conversations, was how do you bring that humanization to the online environment where, as you smartly pointed out, David, uh, a lot of times that tradition doesn't always exist. Right. And so they started thinking about like, so they do a couple of really interesting things in their community. The first is that they have a mix of different types of questions. So they might start off, one of the things that one of the moderators told me is they might start off the week with questions that are a little more getting to know you. You know, questions about like memories, fond memories you might have of the season or or things that aren't overtly getting into disagreement. Right. But that give people a chance to get to know each other. And, and just to clarify, uh, so we understand like the format of this this online gathering. Is it an online event that people are coming to all at the same time? Or is it like a message board that people are kind of posting in asynchronously? It's a Facebook group in this case. So, And so when they join, they kind of get those like more easy questions? So what happens is the Facebook group is an ongoing moderated discussion. So when you try to join, you answer a few questions. That's a feature that Facebook provides. And then you are, you know, admitted or not admitted. And so if you are admitted, then you come into the discussion and you start to see these questions. But as you spend time in that community, you get a sense for how the conversations unfold over time. Mm. So, you know, at the beginning of, let's say, a week, you might you might see some of these types of questions. And if you scroll down, of course, you can you can always see them. But Facebook has that, you know, that chronological presentation. Right. But then as time goes on, you might start to see questions. Um, and time goes on, like, you know, this is kind of on a weekly cycle is the way they explained it. it to me. Interesting. Uh, so as the week wore on, they would start to ask questions that might start to get at more disagreement. Okay. But even in asking those questions, I think one of their approaches was to really try and focus on nuance. So- for example, you could ask a question like, should XYZ thing be legal? That's the sort of question where people are immediately going to start getting into it in the comments. They're going to have like a lot of opinions right. and a lot of preconceived ideas. So they would tend, especially with certain very controversial topics, to gravitate towards uh, questions like, you know, instead of saying specifically, should something be legal, talking about the nuances of it. You know, for example, this is how, you know, how do people who are religious think about this particular aspect of this issue? Like that might be an example of a question. And so then, you know, people can start coming at it from like different, you know, like different angles there. But even reading the question requires understanding and appreciating and going into a realm of nuance and stepping away from maybe knee jerk responses. So I think that those were a couple of the things that they did. The other really key part is they would do a lot of behind the scenes uh, one-on-one messaging with community members. And so if, for example, there were people who maybe were being perceived as insensitive or were kind of dominating the discussion, for example, they might reach out to them and say, hey, would love to talk with you about ways to you know, express this view um, that might land better to kind of, again, try and create that mentality of discourse. Did they let anyone into that community or did they curate who showed up there or like check for intentions or something? They do curate who shows up. So I think that in talking to, again, the two founders who are the ones responsible for letting people in, they or they were when I when I spoke to them, they did say that a couple of things they would think about. One was, of course, kind of representativeness. So they want to try and ensure that they have a pretty diverse mix of viewpoints in the group. But the other was also um, they would occasionally look at the person's profile or other things to get a sense of how they express themselves online uh, to try and see, is this somebody who tends to like just come in, you know, blazing with a very firm opinion, knocking others down, or are they kind of more thoughtful? So there's, there's definitely an, there's a strong element of curation and there's a strong element of self-selection potentially in groups like this too. Right. I mean, I think when you think about the whole tenor of the group is political discussion, 
about difficult topics with people of from so-called the other side. And so, you know, who is going to be drawn to that? And I think you have to ask that question, right? This isn't just like a snapshot of the American electorate at large. No. If you're showing up in this space, there's a good chance you're interested in understanding the other side. Like that's why you're showing up. You want to learn. And not, and not only that, but maybe your views are a little more moderate and that's why you're drawn to it. You know, so I think there are, so I don't necessarily say you can extrapolate from say MADA to like the country and how we should run say elections or like those larger conversations. But this is an example of a group that was looking specifically at difference. And I think that in general, I love it. when you're thinking about difference, I think you have to think about there's a little bit of kind of managing how much, not just how much difference your community contains, but kind of when there is conflict, how you're going to approach that and what your perspective is going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the groups I talked to about how they manage discussions around race had really tried, tried to grapple with this. They weren't formed to talk about issues of race, but then ran into some conflict because there were members of that group who felt that their views were not being heard. Mm -hmm. And so the person who was in charge of moderation told me that she really started to think about herself. I mean, this is her personal like passion and enthusiasm as well, but how do you lead not just when there's a difference, but when people don't even understand when people on different sides of that discussion, maybe don't understand why the other viewpoint even exists. How do you lead with thoughtful education? You know, how do you link resources? How do you kind of, help people understand where people are coming from. And I think as you do that, of course, as a moderator and a community, you're also putting stakes in the ground, right? You're saying, this is what we believe to be true. Uh, Here are the resources we point you towards. Here are kind of viewpoints that we think are important to consider. Mm -hmm. But I think that that sort of initial scene setting where you're thinking about how do we kind of educate people to be in the space to have the same conversation is really important. Right. From the moment they enter the space, you don't just, again, do it reactively. You proactively educate and and show them how to contribute in a thoughtful way. Absolutely. One of the groups I, uh, I interviewed actually was really fascinating on this front. So they're a group called Real Talk, Mm -hmm. and it's a group formed for women of color and allies to talk about issues related to race. And so, and I, I thought this was a fascinating group. The person um, whom I spoke to, one of the founders is someone named Lisha Michelle, who's also a writer and journalist and has written really interesting uh, essays on Medium on the same topic. And so they actually have, in addition to really thoughtful divisions within the group itself, they actually have training programs for people who want to join because they had noticed that when people were coming into the space, they just weren't coming in from the same perspective of allyship. People were getting very, dis, you know, just, it just wasn't going the way they wanted. And so they've actually created a, what they call a training program. And they have you come in and talk about issues of racism and, and privilege and how that operates in your own life and other people's lives. And hmm. uh, this is a training they really specifically often will offer for women who identify as white to say, here's the perspective that women of color are coming from. And that's, that's the group's purpose. Like they say that explicitly that that's, you know, a perspective they want to foreground, but it's also an opportunity within that training to kind of role play disagreements around issues of race and how to resolve them. Mm. And so there's some really interesting things they're doing, but again, kind of going back to that question of like, how do you educate people even when they're entering? What does that mean? You know, and and needless to say, one of the things they were very honest with me about is that people drop out during that training, you know, and they realize that, you know, it's not for everyone. Like not everyone is going to want to engage in this way. And that's totally fine. And, you know, even the house rules say that maybe this isn't for you. Yeah. It's a good barrier to entry. Make sure everyone in there is in there for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. That's a really great example. And I love the idea of, you know, diversity training and how to talk about race so you can provide to community members that group is specifically built to talk about race. Is there anything that you learned or could extrapolate from that that other communities can apply uh, when talking about race in their spaces? Yeah, I think there's one concept that they do that I thought was really beautiful uh, and really interesting. And it is a process that Lisha referred to as mending. That was the term. So within the Facebook group, there are different spaces Uh, which is something they've done somewhat creatively with Facebook's interface, because especially when the group was started, creating subgroups was actually not a straightforward process. Still isn't. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, exactly. I mean, the the things Facebook could improve are are lengthy. Um, So, but they created an event called the Mending Room. But the mending process is really 
when there's a discussion in a common space in the group, and maybe that discussion, maybe someone in that discussion unintentionally causes harm, mending is a way for a member of the group to kind of, so someone will say, hey, that felt harmful. Uh, And then one of the moderators or one of the, there are some people in the group who are qualified to run mending will say, hey, let's take this into mending. So you go into a, a designated space and in view of other folks coming into that space, you will have a one-on-one discussion with your mending coach as the person who's kind of being called into mending about why this was hurtful and harmful. And that person might give you some resources. They might try and explain something. A lot of times, uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is they said, you know, if it is, let's say, a white woman who's caused harm, we'll actually ask a white woman to be the mender so she can draw on her own personal experience about, you know, Mm -hmm. I've also said things that were hurtful in this way. And here's how I think about it. Or, you know, there's that kind of way to approach it. And so then the person who is, you know, receiving the mending will then return back to the conversation and they will have an opportunity to say in that discussion as well, hey, I now realize, you know, I apologize for the harm that this may have caused. Here's what I've come to appreciate and understand about this discussion, you know, and they'll kind of make good to the community. And I think one of the things Leisha told me that was really meaningful is that mending isn't seen as punitive. The idea is it's part of the process of being a person and that we're all going to be mended at various points and it could happen to us many times. And I think that that, and she said the idea is to approach it with grace. And I thought that was a beautiful concept. I mean, the truth is not everybody is interested in that kind of mending. There are a lot of people making... I was going to say, do do people like push back and they're like, ah, I'm not trying to mend anything. I didn't do anything. Oh, else. yeah. Yeah. There are people who leave. I mean, at every point, like, you know, people are going to drop out of you know, conversations. And, and actually real talk, Alicia was very open to that. I think one of the things that, you know, um, they recognize is that if you don't want to be there, it's not a good use of your or anyone else's time to try and force you to remain. So they really want people there who are willing to have very difficult conversations. Uh, And so, but I think the idea of mending is interesting. I think like the internet is full of insincere apologies from people. Um, But there is an opportunity to kind of think about, I think of mending as sort of on the other side of what we might think of as like cancel culture. Right. Needless to say, some people probably deserve to be canceled. They're not interested in making amends. They're not interested in understanding any viewpoint but their own. Um, but in situations where people are, maybe there is a way to kind of think about mending and what that means. And I think that mending is different from a private conversation because it does happen to an extent in public view. And there's an accountability measure. Like as the person who has been, who has received that mending, you are expected to go back and and kind of explain how your viewpoint may have changed or what you now know. And so I think all of that is really important. I think the fact that they distribute the labor of mending also is important, that it's not just the moderators. They have a crew of people who, you know, specifically are taking on that hard emotional work. Right. You mentioned cancel culture. I feel like I kind of have to ask if if you kind of dug into that topic at all and how moderators, do they do they see that happening in their communities? And is that something that they try to manage? Sort of from the side is how this came up, I would say. So I think potentially one of the examples, one of the um, one of the groups that I talked to, and it's a group that's had a challenging history. Um, but two of the people I talked to for this book were the original co-founders of the movement known as Sleeping Giants. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they're both people who work in advertising. One is Nandini, whom I told you, who connected us. And then the other is, you know, this gentleman, Matt, who uh, who also helped start it. And so I think that they both talked, we talked a little bit about this because, you know, uh, Sleeping Giants is a figure in what we would think of as, you know, this kind of um, culture from a couple of different angles. Of course, they call out advertisers, their whole, you know, their movement on Twitter and Facebook. And so their their whole MO is that they tweet at advertisers who are advertising on far-right websites, what they define as, you know, hateful platforms. Um, and that's their definition. And they encourage, you know, kind of by bringing that into the open, they try and pressure the brands to stop, you know, advertising there. Um, and so, and that's one element of, of kind of how they interact with that. But then the other side of it is that, you know, I did talk to Matt a bit about how initially the account was anonymous and then he actually had his identity revealed without his consent. He was doxxed. And so he talked a little bit about kind of the challenges of that journey uh, and and 
what it meant to kind of suddenly be the focus of really intense hatred from some people for for that work. Uh, And so I think it was an interesting exploration of kind of the very real emotional impact that kind of being on the receiving end of a lot of online antipathy, the emotional impact that that can have on your life. Mm. And so I think that that was one way of thinking about it. I think if I were to write like another book, I would totally look at cancel culture kind of kind of exclusively because I think it's I mean, as I think there are a thousand books also being written on that topic as we speak. It's an interesting cultural phenomenon. Yeah. So I think they were the group that kind of maybe dealt with some of that the most. Otherwise, it wasn't necessarily something that came up explicitly. And I think possibly one of the reasons was that some of the groups that I spoke to had been around for a little while. And I think one of the things that happens to online communities over time is that they kind of start to develop a flavor and people who, for whatever reason, don't feel at home kind of leave. And so I think, and this is something that, you know, the Mata founder said to me too, is that over time, this group has learned how to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that that can be both good and bad. I think it can kind of discourage sometimes valuable newcomers. Um, but it can also make discussion easier for the people who are already in there. So what I see in, in a lot of communities, it may not be like full on cancel culture, mm-hmm. but, you know, some sort of like a pile on, right? Like someone makes a mistake, like I've made mistakes before, mm-hmm. you know, we've made mistakes. And uh, whether it's a member of our community or a member of our team, you know, sometimes like once one person brings it up and then another person jumps on and then all of a sudden it feels like kind of runaway train. Did you talk to moderators about like, have they had experiences where, you know, a large portion of the community kind of got angry altogether and and managing kind of that, that movement of anger that can go through a community sometimes? I definitely talked to moderators about moments when they had, when either their actions or another event had aggravated, like, chunks of the community. I don't know if I talked to anyone about an instance where one person aggravated everybody and there, I mean, <laughs> right, well, not necessarily that everybody, came up, but, right? I mean, there's yeah. like, I think that the equivalent of like canceling in moderation world is you notice a member has, is antagonized a lot of people. And uh, maybe you've tried reaching out to them because you value their perspective and they're just not getting it. And then you just remove them. So like most moderators have removed somebody. Um, I also spoke to a moderator who, she had a great story about how she actually had become the administrator of her uh, video game guild, her online video game guild. And she was actually sort of canceled as a moderator by the group Mm. because they didn't care for kind of the way she was managing the group. And so she came to, she said that was a valuable lesson for her and kind of learning how she thinks about authority and all of that. So I talked to somebody who had kind of stepped back in their group for sure. I think that the closest, I mean, obviously pylons happen. I think sometimes pylons are pylons on one person. Sometimes they're pylons on a particular discussion that just, you know, turns into like a fire out of control. Mm-hmm. And honestly, a lot of times what I saw there was people, sometimes moderators would try and intervene, but sometimes they would just shut it down. Yeah, turn off the comments. Yeah, and that, I mean, you know, if not turning off the comments, then maybe just ending that particular, like, comment thread. Um, if it's just not going right. anywhere, good. that's what I meant, yeah. Yeah, it's usually what I would do. If I see something, like, people starting to kind of get a little um, rude toward each other, I'll, like, jump in with the comments, be like, hey, just a reminder, like, I'm here watching. Just, you know, treat each other with respect. And then, like, if it continues, it's like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna shut this one down. It's, it's not going in a good direction. I think it can be helpful sometimes to give people a heads up, like, that you're going to shut something right. down and then that you've done it. Like, yeah. I saw people doing that. I think this is also about the resources you have as a moderator, David. Like, how much emotional energy do you have to kind of get into the middle of a pylon, you know? <sighs> right? Like, that's the eternal not question. <laughs> like, do you have resources? Do you have other people who can take, like, some of the combatants to the side and be like, peeps? Calm down. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to preserve your own well-being. Well, let, let's talk about that. What What are the things that you've heard from moderators that they do to, you know, kind of practice self-care and manage their own energy and, and how much, you know, they put on, especially if there's a troll in the community or someone who's attacking them personally? How, how are they navigating that kind of emotional weight well, I think this is a great uh, this is a great question because it does it does allow me to say one thing, which I know you will 
agree with as well, which is that I think right now, unfortunately, we put a lot of the burden of self-care on individual moderators and moderation teams. And I think that's because in general, too often, the profession of moderation, the way it's structurally set up is is to kind of emotionally ruin people. I mean, that sounds horrible, but I think there's not protection. So I think what I mean by that is that first and foremost, I think we need to demand of companies who employ moderators that they create environments where moderators can be healthy and whole. That includes providing things like fair pay, visibility into like who moderates and how, giving the moderation team or the community management team insight into, let's say, product decisions. Like if you're managing, you know, a video game community and you're kind of the conduit for what the community feels, like you should be able to like share that feedback and it should be heard and then providing resources like therapy if it's needed. And those are things that need to come at a structural level from organizations. And, and a lot of times they aren't all there. So I think that within that framework, a lot of times moderators are operating in a really difficult individual environment within like having said all of that. I think that there were a couple of things I heard and none of them were perfect solutions because this is an emotionally difficult job. And I think that that's just the reality. And that's something that several people I talked to brought up is that it is just, it's a lot of emotional work or it can be, uh, especially depending on like, you know, the type of relationships you're managing. So one of the things that uh, people did mention to me is this idea of having resources around you so you can kind of tap out of discussions. So one of the people I spoke to um, also ran a video game guild, and his name is uh, Lee Andros. And uh, what Lee told me is that he has a really amazing cadre of people around him who are also officers in the guild and to whom he can give responsibility when he's overwhelmed and exhausted by the work. And I think that's a huge part of doing that. So I think like really good teams in general, like when I say good teams, I mean teams that ideally have several people that care about each other's well-being. They've thought about like, how do we create space if somebody needs to tap out and somebody else needs to step back in? Mm. And like, how do we have dialogue around that? And so they'll often have conversations and forums behind the scenes where moderators are talking amongst themselves and, you know, they have that opportunity or where a moderator can like pipe up and say, hey, I am dealing with a really difficult discussion. I just need some extra hands. And so I think that's valuable. Another moderator I spoke to, and I thought this was kind of fun, um, was uh, this gentleman who, uh, who I spoke to him by his uh, by his handle, which was a uh, cowhide man, and he moderates. Good name. Um, it's oh, it's great, uh, very applicable because he moderates a group on the site FetLife, which is a social site for kinky people, mm-hmm. and he moderates a group for newbies, basically. So it's kind of a group. It has many, many. I want to say hundreds of thousands of members over its life. And he's kind of teaching a lot of these people about both the norms of the community and like kind of like introduction to like kink, which is a difficult topic. One of the things that he told me is that he kind of, after he had been doing this for a while, he had reached a point of total burnout. And he was like, I was ready to stop entirely. And this is someone who really cares about like the community and the moderation work. And he said, I just kind of, without naming any names, kind of created this joke forum post where I just kind of let off some steam about some of the frustrating things that like, you know, I was getting from community members on a daily basis. You know, things like, you know, special people popping up in the inbox to say, I shouldn't have to follow the rules and you're a fascist for doing this. And, (laughs) you know, he kind of, again, without naming names, kind of went off. And so, and he told me that that actually kind of helped save his moderating career because it made him realize that Hmm. as a moderator, you need to have a place where you can blow off steam. You know, you need it for yourself and you need it with your team. And so he said that sometimes his team members will wander into that thread. Other moderators of other groups will wander in. Mm. uh, And it's just like this, fun kind of space. And so I thought that was really interesting. And is that that's just for moderators or you posted that like to the whole community? So it's visible, which is why it's important that like things not be identifiable. It is visible to other people, but like, you know, it it has lots of comments. And so like other, you know, other moderators will come in and the comments have kind of taken on a life of their own over the years. So yeah, that was, I thought that was a great learning. Um, And we kind of, yeah, we realized that about like, in-person work, like formal work teams, you know, like, I mean, all of us can remember like, you know, the, the corporate happy hour, or as he referred to it, the corporate lunch, but, uh, you know, uh, moderation teams and volunteers need things like that too. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that a lot because I think moderators and, and community builders often, uh, you know, they're, they're only hearing from the person who's upset with them. They're not necessarily getting someone who's like, thanks for doing that great moderation work. 
these past few years, it's been very helpful. But I guarantee in any healthy community, there's the majority of the people in there actually like care a lot about the moderator and want them to be happy and healthy and appreciate the work they're doing. But like as moderators or community builders, we often just kind of keep it to ourselves. We don't want to like bring that kind of, I don't know, negativity or something into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I kind of, I love that idea of just being like, like, I'm going to blow off some steam because I'm your moderator. I've been dealing with all this shit and here are the things I'm doing with every day. And I just want to talk about it openly. I'm sure there was like a ton of comments on that. was just like very supportive and wanting to help and wanting to be there and saying nice things about them. Like mm-hmm. that, that's a great way to kind of remind yourself of that support. And it also creates a lot of trust and transparency with the community because they're like, oh yeah, there's like a human that's doing this work for us all the time. And they'll respect it more. Totally. And I think, you know, David, for what it's worth, well, talking to community members was not the prime focus of what I did. I did talk to some members of the communities yeah. that I you know, you studied there? to understand their experiences. Yeah. And so I will say that some of the like more than one person who had been a member of a community for a period of time said something to me like, you know, when I first joined, I didn't understand what the moderators did. But now I see, and specifically they would say things like, one of the one of the things that I heard was, you know, I now see how much work they do behind the scenes to keep things running. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that acknowledgement of they do work behind the scenes. I think people who've been in a community for a long time and deeply invested in it and care about it, like a long-term member, I mean, it stands to reason, again, selection, that they are people who would appreciate the moderation style, but they also have come to understand it more mm-hmm. and see how much of it is invisible. But a lot of people who are maybe there more casually or newer entrants really might not understand that upfront, yeah. you know? So again, making it visible, like being able to like break that wall of moderation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's great. Again, if it's done kindly and like, you're not like exposing somebody, an individual to like ridicule or humiliation. That makes sense. I'm curious to get your take on this topic of like free speech and like, where's the line when you, when you think about, you know, someone who's trolling in a community, someone who has strong opinions in a community, someone who's, who's bringing negativity or something into a community. Like there's a lot of conversation now in online communities about like, well, you know, you're, you're stifling my free speech um, by moderating me. And you know, in my, in what I what I'm seeing, there's like clear, like yeah, you you shouldn't be able to say that. We're gonna take that off. Um, and there's clear, like yeah, this is great. This is a very positive comment. But then there are these gray areas of like, is it harmful? Is it hurtful? Is it like, is there an undertone here or clear message that they're not saying explicitly, but clearly has intention? H- how are moderators managing? Or, or thinking about this topic? Or how are you thinking about it from everything that you've learned? I think free speech is like one of those terms that now we've just decided to throw around. And like what it means is like, it. I think it's a term that has become politicized in so many different ways. I think for me, this really goes back to my earlier point, which is like per- perfect inclusivity is a myth. And as a moderator, if you're trying for it, you are in a thankless position and you're not going to succeed. There is no way for you to create a space where every single person is going to be able to feel comfortable and happy. So you have to decide what is going to work and what isn't. And I think that, I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of, there are so many elements of this, you know, I think the first, of course, is that we don't all have the same definition for a lot of terms that we think are actually universally defined. Like terms like hate, for example, even a term like that. different people have different ideas about whether something is hateful. And I think that as a moderator, you can't just say, don't be hateful. I mean, you can, but there's going to be a lot of ambiguity. And I think, I mean, as you know, as someone who's moderated spaces, you can be surprised about the things that people find ambiguous that you think are not. And so I think that you really have to get into the details when you're creating like guidelines about like, how and why do you want people to obey certain rules? You know, like, we don't want you to say things like this uh, because it just causes X, you know? That's one way to kind of try and get around that subjectivity. So giving examples. Yeah, absolutely. Giving examples, also recognizing that like at the end of the day, the moderators are the ones in charge. It just is going to be that way. There's like a judgment call element to it. Yeah, but I think like the reality is, I mean, there's one group I interviewed, uh, 
Juliet Eldred, who started this group called Numtot on Facebook, which is this like very well-known, now very large group, new urbanist memes for transit-oriented teens. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they say in their guidelines is that uh, this is not a space for you to just come in and say whatever you want. You know, don't come at us about your free speech. Uh, that's not what this platform and space is for. And I think that you can just say that. Like, at the end of the day, as the moderator, especially if you're on, you know, in a private group, in a private platform, you have the right to define um, what happens in your community. Um, and now I think, of course, as a moderator, you also want to encourage dialogue. But ask yourself whether somebody is really staying true to the spirit of, you know, the purpose of the community. Are they helping? Are they harming? Um, and that kind of goes back to, you know, and if they are, if it's pointed out to them that they are harming, then do they change, you know? And I think that's really the, the way it goes. You have the right to make that decision, ultimately. I think sometimes moderators, you can be afraid to trust your own judgment, but I think you have to, you have to be willing to trust your judgment. So I think that's one part of it. I think the other, I mean, trolling is such an interesting topic in general. It reminds me of... Did you interview any internet trolls? Okay, so I didn't, but <laughs> I, uh, there are people who do that. Um, there is a scholar uh, named Whitney Phillips who has written um, about troll and troll, trolls and troll culture oh my goodness. Um, extensively. Yeah, no, it's great. You should definitely... Um, I, have to, I have to get all these folks on, on the podcast. This is gold. Oh, yeah. One of her books is called This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Very fitting. Uh, they've heard of it yeah totally and so i um so i think it's really interesting to think about this because i interviewed back when i was in grad school and doing that you know news website comment section you know research i interviewed somebody who'd started an online forum like many years ago and they said that initially they had created little labels that people could put on comments and so he had created a label called troll and he had initially thought that this would serve as a mechanism to sort of discourage people who are being troll trolls. Like somebody would put a troll on your comment and yeah. you would feel embarrassed and go away. And he said that the opposite is actually what occurred in many cases, that people began to take pride in the troll moniker. Oh, the geez. trolls created their own community and found, created a little forum where they practiced like trolling and, oh you know, techniques and whatnot. So I guess what I'm trying to say, and this is like a lesson we all learn also from like, you know, Chan sites, et cetera, is that, you know, um, trolling is a culture and, and actually, tr you know, we people we think of as trolls have communities as well, you know? So it's kind of, it's interesting to think about like what people feel the need to disrupt and what they feel the need to preserve, mm. you know? So yeah, I mean, I think like there's a lot of subjectivity around certain terms. And I think like trolling also is like a form of communication, even though for moderators, it can be a frustrating one because a lot of times it's about disruption. Did you learn anything about like, aside from just banning or suspending, like does anyone try to engage the trolls? Some people honestly don't realize when they are being trolly. trolling. Yeah, trolling. Yeah. Um, some of this is about like whom you're talking to and how they perceive your words and phrases and, and comments, you know? And so all, all the time, I would say that like a lot of times, especially if it's a member of your community who's often in good standing, a moderator will just, you know, pull that person aside and say, hey, what about maybe saying it this way? Or what about approaching it this way? And if that person right. was genuinely interested in positive engagement, they would often say, sometimes they might feel upset or defensive, but they would say, okay, I'll think about what you've said and try and apply that a bit more, right. you know? Yeah. I mean, all the time. Um, I mean, there are people who need to be removed again because they're just too disruptive. Yeah. Well, there's but... a spectrum of, of trolliness, right? There's like, okay, you're clearly here to just be an asshole and try to ruin people's day. And then there are people who unintentionally come across as rude or unempathetic or something. And, and that's where it's like, okay, like you aren't, you, you don't seem to be aware of how you're coming across. Let me see if I can facilitate this. Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, we all, I, and I think most moderators can kind of sometimes tell the difference or over time we'll start to tell the difference. I also will say that I heard a really interesting story from Nandini who, uh, you know, who ran Sleeping Giants for a while. And one of the things that she said is that occasionally they would get people kind of commenting, sending really antagonistic messages, mm -hmm. you know, basically saying, I think your mission is, you know, whatever, you know, insert your favorite expletives here. And, you know, uh, you guys are just like, you know, X, Y, Z. And, um, and she said that occasionally when she had the emotional energy and time, she might reply and say, huh, sorry to hear you're upset. Like what's, you know, what's yeah. bothering you? Or are you having right. a bad day? Or, you know, just something like that. And she said that upon occasion, and I've seen this in other places too, the person would be so taken aback at being yeah. engaged in a normal <laughs> conversation that they would 
suddenly step back and say, oh, you know, whatever, sorry for, you know, coming on so strong, like, you know, or here's our legitimate. They didn't expect a human to respond. Yeah. I mean, that's like a lot of work for a moderator, but like, I know. sometimes a troll just like, you know, a person who seems a troll. Yeah. I love doing that. That's my go-to. I love killing them with kindness <laughs> and just like responding super thoughtfully and like, almost like I didn't even notice they were being mean. Like, or yeah, or saying like, wow, it sound, sounds like you're having a rough day. I'm sorry to hear that. Hope you're, hope you're well. <laughs> um, or, or they'll say something very antagonistic. Like this happens a lot on Twitter. It's like, I'll post some, some idea. And someone will respond with like a very like negative, like clearly like attacking kind of thing. And I'll just be like, interesting. Tell me more about that. And just try to like keep asking why and like ask them to like explain things more. Like I'm genuinely interested. You clearly have a different perspective than me. I would like to hear more. And just kind of like ignore the tone that they took in a way. Right. Just let the tone go and just be like, all right, like, what are you trying to tell me? Come on. And you, you, I'm sure you've gotten some amazing responses. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So once in a while, you know, a lot of time you just get nothing back. They just disappear. But once in a while, it's like, oh, wow. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Where, where are we? Where, where is the world going in, in terms of <laughs> moderation and community? <laughs> Big question. Like from you've done this research now and you've written the book. Like what, what do the next few years look like in the world of community moderation? I'd like to say that the next well, some fundamental questions are not going to immediately get resolved. Um, and some hopefully will be making some progress. So I think one of the things that we're starting to see a little bit more of is perhaps a growing awareness that moderation is emotionally very taxing and that people who do moderation work need some kind of resources. And actually, we have to give a lot of credit here to, you know, the journalists who have written stories about like Facebook's contract moderators, for example, um, and have really exposed the enormous, you know, trauma that people can experience after doing that job. That's mm -hmm. a little bit different. It's in a very specific category. You know, the types of, of, right. of objectionable content you're viewing are specific. But I think the reality is that we're just becoming more aware that moderation is super hard, you know, um, and that, and we're becoming more aware that people are doing it even on platforms and in places where we're not fully aware of what moderators are doing. There's more to that work. Mm -hmm. So I think that greater visibility hopefully will continue. And I think that, I mean, hopefully we'll continue to see movements towards companies being aware of and respecting that. So that's one, I think kind of some of the larger questions might remain unresolved. And of course, one of those big questions is, you know, what, I talked a little bit earlier about what fair pay, but like, what is fair pay for moderation? Um, and how do you think about like the value of community? I think increasingly, there's so many communities online. Everybody wants communities, brands want communities, et cetera. But community is really hard to maintain. We know that. It takes a lot of investment in people. It takes a lot of investment of time. So how do you kind of, how do you thread this needle of like valuing that work and trying to scale it? And I think that there are no easy answers and I don't think we're going to suddenly develop one either today or in, like tomorrow. But, but I think this question of like, what is fair pay for moderation work? I think that's going to continue. It's something that came up a lot in my conversations because again, a lot of the moderators whom I spoke to were volunteers. They loved the work, but they were like, you know, I also have to like pay my bills as a person. Like, how do I kind of reconcile some of this? And so, and, and others, you know, were happy to have this in an area of their lives where, you know, financial remuneration at least didn't enter into it. But, but I think it's an ongoing question. And so I think that'll continue. And I would love to see more um, thoughtful discussion and debate there. But also, honestly, like with schools going online now, with like everybody going to virtual events, suddenly we're going to need a lot more moderators. We're going to mm -hmm. need skilled and trained moderators. We're going to need frameworks for moderation that like we can apply across a variety of scenarios. We're going to need training for, for all of these moderators. We're going to need moderator training for like teachers and virtual classrooms and, you know, all of that jazz. So I think there's like a huge reckoning for how we think about, you know, moderation in the world at large. Um, we definitely are going to need more of those skills. 100%. Is there a really good resource for moderator training that you came across that you'd recommend? No single one. Uh, I think moderator training is very important. And I think organizations that did it systematically tended to, you know, see good results from it. But I think uh, this kind of goes back to the fact that moderation is very different. And a lot of times moderation can feel very siloed. Uh, there wasn't just one guide. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's I think there's a need for potentially more writing and thinking and, and more more guides in this area, but also more recognition that like, 
a lot of it is context and nuance and it's gonna be context yeah yeah there's probably systems and strategies that are universal though absolutely like this idea of how to referee a difficult conversation how do you bring an education how do you humanize people in conversation how do you handle a difficult one-on-one interaction right really i mean how do you handle conflict um and how do you de-escalate a conflict we're actually going to be working on a training on that one so we can uh, we can we can train people on that um okay awesome I would love to keep going, but we are at time for our rapid fire question round. Amazing. I'm ready. Number one, what's your favorite book? Right now, I just read uh, The Bear and the Nightingale trilogy by Catherine Arden. Loved it. It's this lovely book based on, you know, Russian folklore. Uh, Great, uh, great story and a great escape from, you know. Reality. Reality being a little difficult. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I would love an escape from reality. I will read it. Okay. Number two, what's your favorite community? Okay. So of late, I had this amazingly positive interaction the other day on Quora where I, so I get the Quora newsletter. Mm -hmm. It is like eerily well personalized. um, And so I often click through and I left my first Quora answer. Oh, wow. And it got so many upvotes. Mazel tov. Thank you. I know. It was a big step for me. And then afterwards, somebody wrote a response, or maybe this was to one after this, I was very empowered and I wrote another one. Um, And they said something like, you know, if aliens came to Earth and looked for and asked me for proof that empathy exists, I would point them to your comment. And I was so blown away. It was something like that. I was just so blown away. I have rarely, I mean, a stranger on the internet said something so wonderful to me. Can you believe? So, so I have been wandering into Quora now. I follow a couple of subreddits um, for people who do like really elaborate and skilled makeup design. Uh, Yeah, they like paint these like little like designs and patterns on their like eyelids and stuff. It's amazing. I've Um, seen some of those on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. So I've been (laughs) looking at those. Um, and then kind of consistently, and I promise this is the last answer. Yeah. These are supposed to be rapid fire. I know. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Is online gaming. I've been doing a lot of like online, like, you know, role playing games. Oh, love my, love my games. They're great. Awesome. Love it. Okay. Number three, what's your go-to self-care practice? All forms of media consumption, reading, video games, other online games. You consume media to practice self-care? Uh, not always the news. Uh, (laughs) This is, it's going to be things like fantasy novels or Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, yeah. Cool. I like that. Same here. I do a lot of gaming, get a little escape from that. Number four, what's a positive impact that quarantine has had on your life? It's been, it's given me a lot more time to spend with family members Mm. and it's inspired me to kind of for a lot of us grasp I think or just to widen my definition of community Mm -hmm. so whether that's playing online games with new people or setting up Skype calls with friends I haven't seen recently I mean we a very common thing but I think it's been great it's been a chance to like question the the data like our routines which Mm. is you know that that's been it's helped me feel emotionally reinforced uh, at a time when we all need that totally it's definitely challenged or like had had me rethink social my social networks and my friend groups and things like that as well and same here my best friend from college we used to speak like twice a year and now we're playing call of duty like every other day and we get to catch up all the time so that's fun number five this is the easiest one the last one (laughs) if today was your last day on earth and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one twitter length piece of advice to share with the rest of the world what would that advice be? Honestly, David, if I, my my response would be, it's the last day on earth. Why are you tweeting? No, 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 I no. Mean, it's I your last Twitter. day. On, let me clarify. Oh, it's my it's last your day, last on day. Oh, I thought you the meant world, it's like the, the last earth, day of civilization. I need to reword this question because you're the second person to be confused by the wording. You, It's your last day on earth. The earth will continue on. Humanity continues on. And you're sharing your wisdom with the rest of the world based on everything you've learned in a Twitter-sized piece of advice. Be kind, read books, try and judge less. Boom. Fit. That's all I got. It's things I try and tell myself all the time. (laughs) Uh, Those are really good things to tell yourself. Anika, this is awesome. I had so much fun chatting with you. I feel like we can talk for hours on all of these topics, but I'm really grateful for you taking the time to chat with us. I'm grateful for the work you're doing and and the research that you put in uh, to, to putting this book together and everything that you've been publishing I think like exactly what you said rings really true. It's it's a space that's 
community is growing, digital communities are growing, moderation is growing, and there's not nearly enough awareness of what it takes to do that work, the emotional toll, the skill sets that it takes, um, the kinds of challenges that they face. And so, you know, I think your book's going to do really, really well. I, I know I know everyone in our community and the CMX community is going to want to read it. And I'm really glad that there's people like you out there kind of bringing more awareness and, and telling these stories. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, David. It's been lovely being here. And I'm so grateful to the CMX community. And I'm, I'm really grateful to the amazing moderators who let me kind of hang out in their lives for a while. Because <laughs> uh, they're the ones, they're the experts. Their stories brought so much into my life. So I hope others appreciate that too. And last, where can everyone find you and continue to learn from you? So I'm on Twitter at Digital Anika, Digital, you know, we all know, um, A-N-I-K-A. And then uh, my website is digitalanika.com. Amazing. And the book is? How to Handle a Crowd. How to Handle a Crowd. When's it available? August 18th. All right. Is the on-sale date. But you can pre-order it already on bookshop.org or other platforms. It'll be ready by the time this podcast goes out. So everyone will be able to search it up and, and pick up their copy. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.